Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, as we continue our way through the Acts of the Apostles. This morning, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror, said, what is it, Lord? said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. We see in the next verses, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. We're going to come back to this passage next week. But Peter receives a vision from the Lord while these men are coming to receive him. And the vision and the angel tell them to go with these men. So verse 23 So he, that is Peter, invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with him. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up. I too am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them, why you've sent for me? And Cornelius said to him, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I took for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with the power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are all witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. You may be 
seated. Several years ago, perhaps a couple decades ago now, there was an obsession with everything angel-related. I don't seem to see that or hear that as much now, but there was a time when it was a favorite topic of many movies and TV shows. You can think of angels in the outfield or touched by an angel and others. There's posters and figurines and decor that was all angel-related. Merch, as the kids call it these days, often depicting these fat little chubby kids with wings that were supposedly angels. Now, I'm not sure why there was such a fascination or an interest, but I guess the the subject of angels is interesting and perhaps a perplexing one at that. We know that angels are real. We see them clearly in the Bible. They serve in various capacities in heaven as well as upon earth. And we do see them in the text from time to time, coming to earth, especially in monumental moments, usually with a direct message from heaven. You can think of the angel Gabriel. And we don't know what level of involvement that angels have with the world today. We read somewhat of a strange verse in Hebrews that we're not to neglect hospitality to strangers because it says, for some have entertained angels unaware. I think it's a a reference perhaps to Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah and with Abraham and Sarah when there was men that came that were angels. And so, yes, there are those that have unknowingly held hospitality and in so doing did so to angels. Now have you or I met an angel? Probably not. But if you want to argue with me that you have, I'm not going to debate you. That is other than your wife, men, right? You're married to an angel, of course, right? Wink, wink. Use that line. Are you an angel? Because by the looks of it, you fell straight out of heaven, darling, right? If that works for you men, go for it. Women, if that works, bless you, okay? Uh, But in the early church, there seems to be this obsession with angels. And you can understand why. There have been quite a few appearings prior to. And so maybe there was this longing, this desire for angelic visitations to come to them, to come to the church. And so much so that the author of Hebrews has to take the first two chapters to say, why are you looking for angels? You have Christ. In fact, the author says, who Christ making purification for sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You hear what the author is saying. Don't look to angels. Look to Christ. Christ is such more superior, has such more an excellent name than theirs. Well, why do I say all of this? Well, as we come to Acts chapter 10 this morning, we have an angel appearing And when you see that, you should say, oh, 
this. This must be a, a very important moment. This must be something different, something new, uh, a turning point, as it were, in redemptive history. And if that is so, then you are right. This angel appears to say that there is something new, that there is a new movement, and it is a direct revelation from heaven itself. But what you see is that this angel comes to a very unlikely source. He comes to Cornelius, who we are told is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. But what we see with this coming, and then Peter coming to Cornelius is a major turning point in the book of Acts and the expansion of the kingdom. That the gospel goes forth to the ends of the world. Just as Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 that it would go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what is taking place now in the book of Acts. The message is going to go to the Gentiles and thus to the ends of the earth. And what is that message? A message is the message of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, the same message that comes to us today. And so we'll see that in three points this morning. The message of angels, the message of men, and the message of Christ. First, the message of angels. The scene, as you know, it changes in Acts chapter 10 to that of Caesarea. Caesarea was a beautiful port city in Israel, right on the Mediterranean Sea. It was named after Caesar Augustus, and thus it was the the place of residence for the Roman governor of Judea. And it being a port city, that on the Mediterranean, it was the coming and going of everything Roman. You can imagine that Rome where it was and Judah being where it was, that there was a lot of seafaring vessels that would go between the two and they would come to Caesarea. That would be the port from which it would enter into Judea and the rest of Israel and really to the rest of the Middle East. And so when a Jewish reader would hear of or read Caesarea, it might as well have been Rome, or at least the the Rome of Israel. And when you think of Rome, if you were a Jew, that would not conjure up pictures of pizza and pasta and fine wine as it might for you. Rather, that which came from Rome and everything Roman was despised. It was a curse word. These were invaders upon their land. They were captors, foreigners, Gentiles, and even worse, they were trying to change the customs and traditions of the Jews and of Israel. They were trying to change Israel from their perspective from a backwater country to that of a refined culture, the empire of the known world. And that was probably no place more seen, more the case than in Caesarea. But when we think of 
Rome and Romans, we should not think that everyone associated with Rome or those that were Roman were brutish snobs that looked on everything Jewish with disdain because what we read in chapter 10 is a man named Cornelius. And we read that he is a centurion, meaning that he was a soldier in the Roman army and perhaps a lifelong career soldier that had worked his way through the ranks because being a centurion, as the title sounds, would mean that he was in charge of about a hundred men that would report to him. It says that he was, Luke tells us, was part of the Italian cohort, which is a, a cool sounding group, which probably was responsible for the direct service and protection of the Roman governor there in Caesarea. You could probably think of them as the, the secret service. And Luke tells us something very interesting about this man. Verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God. He was a God-fearer. That term has distinct meaning. It means that he was a, a Jewish convert, meaning he was a, a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. You can think of others throughout the Old Testament. Ruth definitely would have been one of them. Uriah the Hittite and, and others. But here we have a God-fearer, a Roman, a Gentile that was attracted most likely to the, to the history and to the order and to the beauty of the monotheistic religion that was not present in Roman pantheistic tradition. And so he feared God, and it says that he and his household feared God, meaning that he is the head of the home, was keeping the laws and the traditions of the Old Testament. It says that he gave generously to, to many, probably giving to the local synagogue and those in need. And it also says in verse 2 that he prayed continually to God. And so by all indicators, he was a, a genuine Old Testament believer. But as we say that, we must acknowledge that that was a bit of an anomaly. On the one hand, he was supporter of the, the Jews and things that were related to Judaism. And on the other hand, he was a part of the system that was keeping them enslaved. And so in this way, Cornelius was kind of a, a Gentile version of Zacchaeus or of Matthew, the disciple. Remember, Zacchaeus and, and Matthew were Jews, but they were tax collectors for the Romans, which was inconsistent. You would say they were playing on, on both teams, as it were. And so, too, Cornelius was a bit of an inconsistent anomaly. The Jews probably didn't know what to do with him. We read, or you'd read in verse 22, a section that we did not read, but it says that when these men, these two servants of Cornelius and this soldier go to find Peter, when they're talking about Cornelius, say to him that the whole Jewish nation speaks well of him. That means that Cornelius was a, a nice guy. He was, he was one of the good ones. He was a good man. But that is in comparison to all the, the Roman jerks around them, right? The Jews liked him, but that does not mean that they fully accepted him as one of them. Because 
At the end of the day, he was still a Gentile, a decent, honorable, good Gentile, but a Gentile nonetheless. But as we think about that, isn't it like God to choose a man like Cornelius that fits kind of outside of the box, one that cannot be pigged? And isn't it like God to choose men and women still today that fit that same description? You might call them misfits or outcasts or square pigs in a round hole. That would be true of any disciple of Christ and surely true of Cornelius. And isn't that consistent with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? That God chose not those that were the most popular. Did not choose those that were the the smartest and the brightest and the best of every culture. No, it says that God chose foolish and the weak and the low and the despised and the things that are not. So that no one might boast in the presence of God, but only boast in God. You see, there is never been nor never will be the perfect preformed Christian. In a sense, God always chooses the the has-beens and the have-nots. Well, just like you and me. And so if you've ever said, you know what, I, 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 I never really fit. I never seem to be a part of the it club. I always kind of feel like a a fish out of water. If that is you, then I would say, welcome home. (laughs) That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the world, we are seen as clowns and fools and dupes and non-relevant and non-important. But you know what? So too is the Lord, who was despised and rejected by men. And so let me say to, to you children and to you youth, I know peer pressure is is so difficult. You so want to to be liked. You so want people that are in your your class or in your grade to to like you, and you you want to be a part of that that cool crowd. But let me tell you that Jesus, if he was a part of your school, would have never been a part of that group. He would never have been considered to to be a part of the, the cool club. He would have been left out. He would have been excluded. So I tell you that, that if Jesus would have been left out of that group, then you need not worry that you would be left out. And I would say to you, even so much as care not what that group thinks, care much more what Jesus thinks and follow him and care what Jesus especially thinks about you because that is so much more important than what your peers think. And I say that not just to youth and to teens. I say that to a church, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this church, that we ought to be one of the most welcoming and friendly places, that this would never be a place where there's an air of pretension or cliques or groups or where you don't really fit in or there's those that don't really fit us 
That might be true out there, but that should never be true in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because only the least of these attitudes is appropriate here. If you are the least of these, then there is no one below you, is there? Everyone is above you. And so therefore, it is a privilege to to meet anyone that God sends in your path because all are greater. If I am a nobody, if I am a nothing, then to meet somebody is something, isn't it? And I'm meeting a fellow image bearer of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal, Lewis says. Only to an immortal soul. And therefore, what a privilege it is. Lewis goes on to say, it is immortals with whom we joke with and work with and marry and snub and exploit. With every human engagement, we are constantly engaged in immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What a statement. But that is why, beloved, we have a a greeter program which we need more greeters, by the way, come and greet those that come in through these doors. That's why we do hospitality. That's why we have lunches like we have today because we are welcoming the stranger in. We are welcoming the misfits, those like you and like me. And so may we be such a a welcoming and warm place because if you are an image bearer, then you have found the right place, the place where you truly belong. The Jews would have said of Cornelius, you know what, he's, he's not really Jewish. And the Romans would have said of him, well, he's not really Roman either. But God says he's really mine. And I will, by my sovereign grace, make him mine. And that is what he does with Cornelius and with each and every one of us. And he sends an a angel, a messenger. And we read of that in verse 3. The angel of God came to him, said to him, Cornelius, in verse 4, it said he stared at him in terror, which is a pretty clear indication that angels are not chubby, half-naked little children with wings. These are some terrifying beings, right? Frightening. And what is the message to Cornelius? It says your prayers, your alms, your financial gifts have not gone unnoticed, but there is something missing in your life. Therefore, send for Peter. You'll find him in Joppa at the Simon the Tanner's house, and he will give you what is needed, what is lacking in your life. And Cornelius does just that. He calls those two servants and a devout soldier to go and find Peter. And as we skip ahead, we see here then the message of men Unbeknownst to Cornelius, as he was being prepared by the angel to meet with this man named Peter, Peter was being prepared to meet a man named Cornelius through the means of a vision. And like I said, Lord willing, next week as we look at chapter 11, when Peter explains this vision, we will understand it in its significance much better. But in that vision, Peter is told that three men are coming to find you, and that you are to go with them without hesitation. But he does not tell them what they are being sent for or why he's supposed to go 
towards this house, this house of a Gentile named Cornelius. But nevertheless, Peter does just that. Now you need to understand that this was not just next door. Caesarea and Joppa were about a two days journey apart. They're both on the, on the coast, but it would have taken two days for those to go and get him and then two days to come back. And Joppa is essentially modern day Tel Aviv. It's where the international airport in Israel is. So if you ever go to Israel, that's most likely where you're going to fly in, right? Close to the town of Joppa. In fact, when I went to Israel several years ago now, one of the first stops on the the tour, the biblical tour, was Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa. Because it was the first stop, it was so exciting. This is so cool. This is Simon the Tanner's house. Now, was it really Simon the Tanner's house? We don't know for sure. It could have been, might not have been, but I'll tell you what, they'll sell you a piece of leather there from Simon the Tanner's house. Merch again. Um, And they'll tell you this is where Peter stayed and ignorant tourists like ourselves, wow, here, take our money, which they gladly receive. But I get off course, two days up, two days back, Cornelius and Peter finally meet. And I love this initial interaction. Because if you read it, you'd see that it seems a bit awkward at first. Have you ever had an experience like that where you meet someone from a a different part of the world or a different culture and, and you're just a little bit on edge? What do I do? What do I not do? What do I say? What don't I say? I don't want to offend and there's kind of this fine dance of trying to work out how these relationships are supposed to work and how they're supposed to go about. And you see some of that, I think, here, where Peter essentially says, I was told in a vision that I should come with these men. And so I have come. And verse 29, he says, so why have I come? Why have you sent for me? And then Cornelius says in verse 30, well, I was told by an angel to, to go and get you, and you were so gracious to come, and well, you have come, and here you are. And Peter's kind of, yep, here I am. And you have this kind of, you're a Jew, and I'm a Gentile. Yep, Jew and Gentile. Big gulps, all right. There's just this awkward tension that we have in this passage that you can kind of cut the tension with a a knife. There's strangers that don't really know how to interact. But doesn't it demonstrate, just a side minor point here, that race relations are, are nothing new. And they've always been, been awkward. And yet it's a, a necessary work. But I tell you, it doesn't take place through programs or take place by movements. It happens when one person meets another and extends a hand and has conversation and personal interaction. That's what you, you have here, even in the midst of the, the awkwardness, in the midst of the, the tension. You have this aspect of, 
these two getting to know each other and truly finding the reason why they've come together, why the angel has brought them together. And you have these wonderful words in verse 33 when it says, so I sent for you at once and you've been so kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here, all here. As we read earlier, it says that he, he gathered together all his relatives and his neighbors. And you can imagine that invitation. I have this guy coming. I don't know. An angel told me to go get him. I don't know what he's coming here for. I don't know what he's going to say, but you got to come. You got to be here for this. And Cornelius says, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. It says that we are gathered here in the presence of God to hear. Not hear what you think, not hear your stories or your funny jokes. We've come here to hear all that God has commanded you to speak to us. We've come to hear God through you, my friend. What you have here is what we'd call a preacher's dream. It's what myself and Pastor Myers get to do every Sunday when you come with that eager expectation to say, we're here to hear God. We want to hear all that God has commanded to us. Give us the full diet of God's word. Give me the book. Give me his scriptures. Give me his word. I want to apply it. I want to know it. I want to live it. What a beautiful aspect of what the church looks like and those in the early church gathering together to hear the message. And what message was that? Well, it's our third point. It's the message of Christ, isn't it? Verse 34, it says, Peter opened his mouth, which is a colloquialism to say that he declared, he, he preached, he prophesied in the New Testament sense of that word. He, he spoke the, the message of God to the people of God. He delivered a sermon. And what was that sermon? Well, it was essentially the same sermon that he delivered in Acts chapter 2 to the Jews. Here we have it in a much more condensed version, but you see the summary of it. In verse 36 through 39, you have the, the life of Christ. Verse 39, at the very end, it says that they put him to death by hanging him on the tree. But verse 40, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. And this one, Jesus, the resurrected one, is not dead. He is living and he's coming to be the judge of the heavens and of the earth. If you read Acts chapter two, it's very much a similar sermon, which is comforting to know that even Peter repeated some sermons, right? But it's the sermon, it's the message of Christ. That is the message that is most important. And what we have here is somewhat of the mystery that we have with preaching, do we not? I wonder as I read this passage, why isn't it that the angel told Cornelius the message of Christ? Why wasn't the angel given the gospel to be given to this Gentiles? Surely an angel would have done a better job than Peter. And an angel would do a far, far better job than the one that stands before you. Seems like angels promulgating the gospel would be the better plan for God to use, and yet that is not God's plan, is it? 
It's a mystery that seems unfathomable. God has given this amazing treasure, this treasure that's in jars of clay that are in crackpots like you and like me, that the story of redemption goes through those that have been redeemed by that same message. It's been given to us. It's been entrusted to us. It is our spiritual heritage, but we're not to keep it ourselves. We're not to hoard it, are we? We're to dispense it to the world. So is that something that we are doing? Or are we hiding our light under a bushel, as Jesus says? Are we a city set on a hill? And what message is it? It's the message of Christ. It's the simple message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus came, that he died, that he rose again, and that he's coming again. All of you can give that message. Now, not all of us are are called to preach. Not all of you are to stand behind a pulpit like this, but all of you as receivers of that good news are to be gospelers of that good news to the ends of the earth. That you're to go forth with the message of the forgiveness of sins. That is what the message was that day. That is why the angel said, go get Peter. And Peter says, this is the message to receive Christ, to receive the forgiveness of sins. It's the same message that goes forth today. You see, that's what was missing in Cornelius' understanding. Yes, I think he understood the need for forgiveness. That's why he was a a God-fearer. That's why he was attracted to to Judaism. But it was not until the preaching of Peter that he recognized that the forgiveness of sins came not through the blood of bulls and goats, but through the true lamb, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's so beautiful. It says that they received it. Along with those in his house, they received that forgiveness tell you, beloved, that is the message that is most needed. The message of forgiveness. I think if you went out on the streets today, you would only find that the most hard-hearted would say that they have no need for forgiveness. But it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that people recognize the need for the forgiveness of Christ and Christ alone. And that message is for all. That is the message for those that are bad, that know that they are bad, and I would say that that is very few. This message is also the message for those that are good, meaning that this is the good news for quote-unquote good people. Cornelius was a good person. You might live to a lot of good people. You might work with them. You might play cards with them. You might play tennis The good people don't make it to heaven on their goodness. Forgiven people make it to heaven through the forgiveness of Christ. Let's never forgive that. And so are you this morning such a a good person? Are you a Cornelius? And I'll tell you what, before men and women, you probably are a good person, a nice and decent and pleasant person that pays your taxes and puts your recycling out every week. But even you, 
before God. You need forgiveness. You need to be reconciled to a holy God. And you do so by the blood of Christ. In a moment, we will confess our sins. And that is real. That's not just perfunctory. That is not just something that church people do. No, that is what sinners do. That recognize that they are in desperate need of a Savior. And that is the only entryway in which you come to this table, my friends. Because it's only sinners that confess their sins, that need forgiveness, that understand the true need for the body and blood of Christ. And they understand that they need it more than the food they eat or the air that they breathe. Do you not see that this is the message of men and of angels? The angel said, call for Peter. And Peter says, call upon Christ. And my message to you this day, 2,000 years later, is the same. Call upon Christ. Look to Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sins, the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what is needed. And we don't oftentimes understand, we don't realize the extent and need of that forgiveness and how precious it is. I'll close with this. This week I posed the question to my son, if you had your choice of, of any five cars, he's a teenage boy, he's into cars right now. When you get to my age, you just want a car that runs. But, you know, and you're that age. You're looking at sports cars and fancy cars. And I said, you could have any five cars, whatever cars you want, brand new, fully paid for. Again, this is very much hypothetical, as you can understand. I said, if you could have that or have the forgiveness of sins, what would you choose? And you could see the, the wheels turning. It's a hard choice. It's a tempting choice. At the end of the day, I've got to say forgiveness of sins is far, far greater, far more valuable. All of those will rust and decay and fall apart one day. Yes, they may be beautiful, they may shine, they may sound pretty when you rev that engine, but at the end of the day, they will not save your soul, will they? Only in Christ. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? We have gained through Christ that which is precious, the forgiveness of sins offered to you. What a gift. What a privilege. It's the message of men and of angels. It's the message of all eternity. It's the forgiveness of sins that is in Christ. Let's come to the table this morning and receive it through Christ. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, supernatural message that was given to Cornelius. It took angels and it took the supernatural prompting of Peter to go, but in the end of the day, it was the same message that comes to us this day. It's the message of the forgiveness of sins that is in Christ. And Lord, we come to you this day in need of that forgiveness, in need of that repentance, O oh Lord. Even as we confessed earlier, would we grieve and hate our sins and turn from them unto you? 
so that we would not only receive that forgiveness, but that we would also endeavor to walk with you in all the days that you've given to us. And we thank you, Lord, that when we do turn to you, that you grant to us, through our confession, the forgiveness of sins. And so may we partake this day of it, and may we partake deeply of it, for we are in great need of it once again.